Well, good morning once again, everybody, and a special good morning to those of you that are watching uh, online this morning, wherever you are today. We welcome you into the house of the Lord this morning. Pray that God is being real good to you in these important days. I love to gather together with my church family, don't you? I love to be with one another, love to sing together, to break the bread of life together. Nothing is more precious for the people of God than assembling together to be able to do that. We're in the book of Malachi once again this morning. Malachi chapter number two today, so if you're not there already, be sure to find that. You know, uh, speaking of being a grandparent, it didn't take me 48 hours to realize that the greatest part of that was when it got to be relatively late and I got tired, I just got in the car and went home and went to bed. (laughs) That is the greatest thing, (laughs) sit there and play with the baby and then just go home and go to bed. Somebody say amen this morning. That's greatest thing ever. Now I'm silly right along with the rest of you today. And uh, congratulations, by the way, to Alan and Wendy Westmoreland, who yesterday became grandparents for the first time as well. Fist bump from a distance, my brother. Outstanding. Yeah, show them some love. It's a great thing. We're growing from within at Hillcrest, which is always a wonderful thing as well. Malachi chapter number two, I'm going to talk with you this morning about the subject of leadership malpractice among the people of God. Uh, You all know that in our culture uh, particularly, uh, we're a nation of courtrooms. And one of the things that we're faced with regularly are accusations of professional malpractice. And you all know what I mean when I talk about that, anytime a word has the prefix mal on it, M-A-L, it means bad or evil. And so malpractice is bad practice or corrupt practice or evil practice. And it happens uh, whenever somebody is incompetent or negligent in whatever service that they're trained to provide. And that can be across a whole host of spectrum. There's legal malpractice, there's medical malpractice, mechanical or architectural malpractice, even ministerial malpractice. And if Malachi were here this morning preaching from this pulpit, he would probably say, especially ministerial malpractice, because this is his topic beginning in chapter 2 this morning. Last week, we looked at the final section of Malachi chapter 1, which was a scathing indictment of both the priesthood and the people of God for their failure to honor God in worship and their failure to fear God in their spiritual life with Him. As we turn the page into chapter 2, we find that Malachi is really on the same subject. If you're dividing the book of Malachi into particular units or or sections of Scripture, Malachi 1 verse 6 would go all the way through chapter 2 verse 9 to be one unit of Scripture. It's a very long one, and so we are dividing it into two sections for our preaching and teaching purposes on Sunday mornings, but Malachi has begun by charging the people with losing their bearings spiritually and making worship more about them than about God. Where is my honor? God asks through the prophet. Where is my fear? Here, beginning in chapter 2, Malachi digs a little bit deeper 
And he helps us understand why that had happened among the people of God. And it's in the very first verse of chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. And that's all you need to hear to know that everything else that he's going to say here is an accusation against the leadership of the people of God. God flat out blames the priest for being complicit in leading the people spiritually astray. It was leadership malpractice. And our passage today gives us kind of a fuller picture of this colossal leadership failure, one that we never want to replicate among the people of God. Let's look at the whole passage now, once again, beginning in chapter two, verse one. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? And now, O priest, this command is for you. <clears throat> if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. These are very direct lines from your word this morning, and yet uh, how desperate we need to hear them. What a powerful reminder of the importance of Christian and spiritual leadership among the people of God. So I pray that your spirit would guide us, <clears throat> guide the instructor this morning, for you alone are the master teacher, and I pray that the word of God would fall on good soil this morning, that it might germinate and bring forth good fruit that you may forever be pleased with this congregation of believers who honor your name and walk in holy fear before a holy God, in whose name we pray. And all God's family said, amen this morning. Now, the first thing that I wanna do is make it very clear that in our message today, I'm not just talking to a group of ordained pastors. In fact, that'd be a very small audience here. The application of this passage of Scripture is far beyond full-time vocational Christian ministry. 
This passage, I really believe, is a word to all of us this morning because, know it or not, like it or not, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've been born again and adopted into the family of God, God has called you to some kind of leadership among His family. You may be called to lead an adult connect group. You're a spiritual leader. You may be called to lead children in the children's ministry. You are a spiritual leader. You may care for babies in the preschool. Well, listen, in the infants over there, we read John 3.16 over them while they're sleeping in the cradle. In our preschool, you are called to be a spiritual leader. You may lead others uh, in the music ministry, in a worship ministry. Here's the deal. You may be a spiritual leader leading your family at home. And the most influential spiritual leaders of all are Christian mothers and Christian fathers. And so make no mistake, every single one of us are part of a kingdom of priests. We're all priests in the family of God. We believe in the priesthood of every believer in, at Hillcrest. And we believe <clears throat> in spiritual leadership by every priest in the family of God. So we're all called to faithfulness and we're all called to fruitfulness in whatever spiritual leadership that we exercise. And toward that end today, let me share with you three things that I think will help keep us in whatever role we are as a spiritual leader from drifting toward spiritual malpractice. First of all, notice with me that effective spiritual leaders understand, first of all, the seriousness of their calling. In other words, we take our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and our responsibilities unto the Lord Jesus Christ very, very seriously. Not flippantly, not carelessly, not casually, not off again, on again. Effective spiritual leaders, whomever they may be, understand the seriousness of their calling. One thing no spiritual leader can do is play fast and loose with the call of God upon their life. And for some, that may be a call to full-time vocational service. It may be a call to missions. It may be a calling to serve in a volunteer ministry. Now, during Malachi's day, the priests, of course, were called by God and bound by what was known as the covenant of Levi. In fact, that's mentioned here today. The prophet references that in verse 4, the covenant with Levi. And then he says in verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. He, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, standing in awe of my name. Verse 6, he walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Why was that the case? Because he was serious about his calling. He was serious about the covenant that God had made with him. Levi, of course, was one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. You all remember the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Judah and Ishakar and Dan and Naphtali and all of those 12 tribes. They inherited the promised land. Joshua took them in and then over a period of decades, they began to settle the land and they began to appropriate the land. Well, the thing that you need to know about the tribe of Levi is they weren't given any of the land. So if you look on one of those maps in the back of your Bible that's got all the tribal boundaries, you will not find a tribal boundary to Levi, and that's because God had ordained them to the priesthood. Their calling was not to a plot of land. Their calling was to the temple, first to the tabernacle, then to the temple. It was to the place 
of worship. And the covenant with Levi really was more of a covenant uh, with Aaron and his descendants following him. Aaron, of course, was Moses' brother. Moses and Aaron were Levites. And God had ordained that this covenant with Levi would be perpetuated through the line of the brother of Moses, whose name was Aaron. That's established in the law of God. The priests would all be Levites. Couldn't be a priest if you were not from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron. And they would have tremendous responsibility among the people of God. They would lead worship, offer sacrifices, teach the law, maintain the temple, No, they didn't get any land. The other tribes would live off the land, but the Levites would be supported not by the land, but by the what? By the tithes and offerings that were taken from the land by the other tribes. They would support their spiritual leaders. They would support the work of the temple through the giving of tithes and offerings, and the Levites would receive those gifts from those who had received the land. Everybody with me so far? Say amen. Now, the covenant with Levi is described here principally as what kind of covenant? It's an echo from the last part of chapter one. It is a covenant of what? A covenant of fear, something that both the priest and the people in Malachi's day, of course, had lost. They were no longer longer walking in the fear of the Lord. But this was a covenant of fear based on the Levitical understanding of the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God Almighty. So these Levites were to be men of godly character, consistently godly character, who feared the Lord. Men who, as it says here, lived in awe of God's name. Fear is the awe of God's name, living in the awe of God's name. So these were men that were to live in the light of God's holiness, and they lost it. Their primary function was a teaching function. They were to teach the people to know the law, and they were to teach the people to faithfully obey the law. Look at Deuteronomy 33 and verse 8. And of Levi, namely the Levites, he said, they shall teach Jacob, which is another euphemism for Israel, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law, And they shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Teaching ministry, a ministry of sacrificial service unto the Lord. Malachi continues that thought here in verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So they had a principal ministry of teaching, and the reason that their ministry of teaching was so important is because it's impossible to separate the acceptable worship of the people of God from the accurate teaching of the preacher of God. Part of the reason that the people were not worshiping God acceptably is that they were not being taught accurately. There is always a cause and effect between the teaching of the people of God and the effectiveness of the worship of the people of God. Without faithful instruction of the Word of God, worship becomes self-centered. That's why you need a preacher preaching a message to you like I did last week with a velvet hammer in hand. Amen. 
because that's what is supposed to happen to keep God's people on the narrow path that leads to life. And without that, worship can easily devolve just as it did then 2,400 years ago into meaningless ritual, nothing but tradition, mindless tradition, don't even know why we're doing it. Even though on the outside, it might appear lively and enthusiastic, that does not necessarily mean it is pleasing unto God. Faithful teaching is critical because it reinforces a standard of holiness, that the, that the Word is God's Word. It's not the Word of the priest, prophet, preacher. It's not the Word of the administrative committee. It's not the Word of the deacons. It's not the Word of the group of Sunday school leaders. It's God's Word. The message belongs to Him, not to us, and that's why it has to remain rooted in the eternal Word of God. And this is why Paul, for example, would write to Timothy not long before his death, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Guard, what he's really saying is guard the gospel. That's the good deposit. The deposit that had been given to Timothy was the deposit that had been given to Paul. It was the deposit of the message of the gospel Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the sufficiency for the forgiveness of human sin and life everlasting together as children of God. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then he goes on in chapter 4 there of 2 Timothy to say, preach the Word. Not preach philosophy, not preach opinion, not preach the headlines. Preach the Word. Be instant, in season, and out of season, ready to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all complete patience and what? Teaching. So God's leaders were to teach the truth of the Word of God. In Malachi's day, the law of God. In our day, the gospel of Christ. They were to teach, yes, but notice also they were to not only teach the truth, but model the truth. Would y'all be okay if I were 100% accurate preaching the Word of God, but then went out and lived like the devil Monday through Friday? You wouldn't like it. I probably wouldn't be here next Sunday, right? It's like I tell all of our parents when we're dedicating babies here at Hillcrest. Man, and I'm just telling you, when that grand boy, I'm going to have to call somebody else in to do it. I won't get through it. I won't get through 10 seconds of it. But one of the things that I normally tell parents is, you need to, in fact, we do it almost as an oath, almost like a set of marriage vows. Do you commit this day before this audience to teach this child the Word of God? Yes, we do. Do you commit this day before these witnesses to live in a way to where what you're teaching this child is observable in your life. Yes, we do. And that's kind of what God is reminding these priests here today. It's not just about teaching the truth. It's about teaching the truth as you model the truth for people to obviously see. Verse 6, he, Levi, walked with me, walked with me. He walked with me with peace and uprightness. Consequence. He turned many from iniquity. So consistency in word and deed 
is vitally important. Oftentimes it's easier said than done because the world is full of temptation, isn't it? We all find a challenge in that. The governor of California is in hot water this morning. Have you all noticed that? You know why? He just didn't practice what he preached. Basically, some of the tightest COVID-19 stipulations in America today are on the West Coast. And they're there because of the authority of the governor, limiting gatherings, requiring certain things to happen, pretty strident and stringent. And then he goes out and joins together with a big group, fancy French restaurant, $350 a plate. Can I have an amen? Y'all can take me out to eat any time you want to. $350, no mask, sitting around the table shoulder to shoulder, and there's a lady sitting over here saying, isn't that the governor of California? And out comes the phone, and we have pictures. It just is mind-boggling to me. And then he went on, he owned it, because, you know, he had to, because he was caught. And here's what he said, I, don't, I not only need to preach, I need to preach and practice. I wonder if somebody showed him Malachi 2. Because that's what God's reminding the priest here. You need to preach and practice. Our ministry calling is always twofold. Never forget that. Regardless of what your ministry calling is, preach the word, teach the word, walk in the spirit. Because only when you teach the Word and walk in the Spirit, will you have a ministry without hypocrisy, one that bears fruit for the glory of God. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, be careful that you don't become a hypocrite by spending all your time trying to get others right with God before you worship God yourself. Can you hear the bells and whistles going off? That's such a powerful statement. And this is the seriousness of our calling. Fear the Lord, teach the word, walk the walk. Everybody with me say amen. Second thing about effective spiritual leaders is that they understand their accountability before God. They understand the seriousness of their calling. They also understand that they are accountable to God. We're going to stand before God at the judgment seat one day, and we will give an account of the things done while in the body. And I'm telling you, it's when you forget that. And it's easy to forget that because it's like in our minds, it's way out there in the future, right? But it's when you forget that, that you start living loose. When you forget that Christ is coming, and then you don't know when he's going to come, and you forget that when he comes, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be an accounting. So this takes us from God's covenant with the priest to God's charge against the priest because God's got some specific things to remind them that he has seen in them that they're accountable for. He begins verse 8 uh, here in Malachi 2 with a couple of very telling words after having reminded them of this covenant and the sobriety of the covenant, he then says in verse 8, but you. And that's just not good because he's presenting the standard on the one hand, peace, uprightness, walking the walk, teaching the purity of the word. 
And when faced with the job description and the next thing out of God's mouth is, but you, you know what's getting ready to come is not going to be easy to hear and it's not. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now, very quickly, let me just show you, there are four accusations there. First, we're told that the priest disobeyed God. They turned aside from the way in that neither, they neither lived the law, they didn't live by the law of God, nor had they effectively taught the law of God. So they disobeyed God. Second, they divided the people. Caused people to stumble because of it. They were exercising spiritual malpractice among the people of God and people were being tripped up by that. And some of them even emulating the model of the priest, which was no model at all. That's bad enough when leaders stumble spiritually. And we all have seen the headlines. It seems like it happens almost on a weekly basis. You know, some prominent spiritual leader trips up and falls. And let me just say, whenever that happens, the news media loves to get a hold of it and shout it to the entire world. And what happens? People stumble. It reinforces a bad image of the church, bad image of the clergy. There used to be a day when the clergy were among the most respected people in the community, and some of y'all can remember those days. Not anymore. Everybody believes that most all clergymen, most all spiritual leaders are practicing one thing on Sunday and something else throughout the rest of the week. So never forget that there's always, and it doesn't have to be from the pulpit. I'm just saying it can be any spiritual leader. There's always a wake that spreads outward from failure that affects other people. And I'm just saying one thing that I never want to do, and the Lord knows, just ask Judy Lynn, because she'll tell you, you don't want to elevate that guy on a pedestal because I can give testimony. He is far from perfect. And the word of God is inerrant and infallible. The preacher is not. But one thing I never want to do is make a shipwreck of somebody else's faith because of my spiritual complacency. Man, you talk about accountability. I think Jesus had something to say about that, didn't he? It would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and for you to be cast into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And when Jesus references little ones, he's not talking about toddlers. He's talking about little ones in the faith. Spiritually immature people who are growing in the faith or trying to grow in the faith. And we trip them up because of a disconnect in our walk, in our talk. Jesus says there are far-reaching consequences when that happens. I truly believe that every spiritual leader needs to be able to at least want to say, just like Paul did, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, you ought to be able to want to say that to your children. Kids, imitate dad as dad imitates Christ. Not perfect, and I'm going to mess up along the way, but I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. Husbands ought to be able to say that to their wives. 
Wives ought to be able to say that to their husbands, to their friends, to their colleagues. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Man, you can say that with the right spirit. You don't have to be a proud person to say that. Now, I think every one of us ought to have a desire to be able to say that. I want to be a living model, living example unto the Lord Jesus Christ, never dividing anybody's heart because of the inconsistency of my life. And then third, they disregarded God's priorities. They corrupted the covenant of Levi. That word corrupted is a word that means to spoil or to ruin. By the way, that's the same word that was applied to Israel when Moses was on the mountain with God. Moses is having this highlight life event up there with God. He's receiving the law from God. And God says, you know what? You probably ought to leave right now and get back down to your people. I've always been struck by that, that God didn't tell Moses, get back down to my people. You know why? Because they were building a golden calf. They were building an idol. And God looks at him and says, you better get back to your people because they ain't acting like my people. They are corrupting themselves. That's the same word that he uses here. In other words, they're ruining themselves. And many of them would die because of it. It would be eternal ruin. And so they had disregarded God's priorities. And then finally, they demonstrated partiality. They, they were leading with bias. They were showing favoritism. Probably to people that had money. Oh, I know that never happens in churches today. Do it. Showing bias. Showing favoritism. Showing partiality. Not treating everybody the same way, but treating others uh, in preferential kinds of ways according to their standing or according to their influence. Treating people by different rules and different expectations. And the Bible is very clear in that it cautions us from not doing this. James chapter 2 is probably the greatest example. It's seven verses long. But James says there at the beginning of chapter 2, my brothers show, and he's talking to the whole church, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because he'll go on to say to make those kinds of distinctions and to operate with that kind of bias, James says, turns us into judges with evil thoughts. And God knows our hearts. So it's his way of communicating that whenever you demonstrate reverence for a privileged few, that has replaced reverence for the one true God. So these spiritual leaders had obviously failed to live in holiness and they'd failed to teach biblically and they'd lowered the standards of worship and they devalued and dishonored the name of God. And it had happened because they had simply lost sight of their accountability before God. They would never curse God. They just forgot about God. And they forgot about their accountability before a holy God. And that always comes with a cost, which takes us to the final principle this morning, because I've got to shut down the day. And that is that effective spiritual leaders understand the consequences of their disobedience. He charged these leaders with matters of malpractice, and now he turns his attention to the inevitable consequences. Should they fail to get their act together? And that's in verse 2. 
if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, he goes on there to list three or four things. He lists three or four charges. Now he lists three or four consequences that are pretty over the top. He says, first of all, I'm going to curse your blessings. It's just an unusual statement. You would expect God to just say, I'm going to curse you. But he says, I'm going to curse your blessings. And I'm glad he says that because I think what he's trying to do with that statement is the Lord's trying to remind them of how blessed they actually were. The incredible privileges that had belonged to them as called out priests to God, simply by the grace of God. None of them had asked to be born into the tribe of Levi, just as none of us had asked to be born in the United States of America. They were just Levites by the grace of God. And God's reminding them, look at all these privileges and these blessings that are yours. You get to teach the law to the people. You get to offer sacrifices and pronounce atonement before the people. You get to serve the temple and protect and guard the holy things of God. You get to receive the tithe. All these people are going to bring you all all these gifts to live on because of your service to God and to them. And because of that, you'll receive the respect of the people. And yet God says, these are the blessings I'm going to curse. In much the same way that God cursed the ground when Adam sinned, right? He curses the ground. And Adam at one time had, had told joyfully and had tended to the ground, and it wasn't labor to him. But yet when God cursed the ground, there were these things called weeds and thorns and thistles and Everything required backbreaking labor. That was God's cursing the ground. And here he's doing basically the same thing. He's cursing the blessings of those called to serve the Lord. God also says he would rebuke their offspring, secondly. Literally, their seed is what the Bible says. I will rebuke your seed. And so the English Standard Version makes the interpretation for you. That's probably a reference to their uh, to their progeny, to their descendants. In other words, it's going to cost your children. My curse on your blessings will be felt not just by you, but by your descendants as well. There are going to be consequences to your family. Man, that's another sermon for another day. You, you think your sin just involves you? This is nobody business but mine. It's everybody that you know's business. Because it affects everybody around you when you decide to do your own thing independently of God. God also says in verse 3 that he was going to humiliate and remove them. Behold, I will spread dung on your faces. I just wish God would get a little bit more direct there. I will spread dung on your faces. I started to entitle today's message, When It All Hits the Fan. That's what he says. The dung of your offerings, and you, you will be taken away with them. That's really a reference to the, what we would call the innards of the sacrificial animal, which was not to be sacrifices. They would need to gut the animal because what was in the gut, the dung. 
and that was unclean to God. So they would clean all of that out before offering the sacrifices and then remove it to the dung heap, right? You remember the dung gate around the wall of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah? Well, that's where all that stuff would have been taken outside and discarded because it was unclean. Eventually, it'd be burned. And this is the stuff that God says, I'm just going to smear it all over your face. And what he's really saying there is, I'm going to humiliate you. You're going to lose all respect among the people. Verse 9, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people. And unfortunately, we've seen that happen all too often in the Christian community. People leading in all different kinds of capacities. I read an article in the paper just several days ago about a very prominent person on a pastoral staff of a worldwide recognized church that had been found in a compromised moral failure, doing great things for God, very influential, only to be revealed as hypocritical in his own Christian life. And what happens? Influence removed. Lampstand is gone. And this is why the Apostle James issued that timeless warning in the third chapter of James, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? Say it out loud, with greater strictness. Now, the last thing I want to do this morning is leave us with dung on our faces. There is a remedy. There is a way out. Y'all still with me? Say amen. The way out is the way back. The way out is to come back to God. The way out is to heed the central message of the book of Malachi. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, is a very positive set of statements because it implies that they can listen and they can take the message of God to heart. There is still time. We can listen to the voice of God. We can get serious about worshiping with sincerity and serving God with integrity. And the way out is to come back. Confess it and repent, as Malachi said last week, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. We're all called to spiritual leadership of some kind in the family of God. The message from God's Word today is never forget how seriously God takes that calling and that we need to live with the understanding that we're all accountable to God with how we influence others with the precious gospel of Christ. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.